Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. Last episode, we were on the right side of the law with the story of Eunice Hunt and Carter. Today, we're going back to the wrong side of things. I would like to give a shout out right here in the intro up top to uh, the person who inspired this episode. So this episode is a very special reader request. Um, a couple months ago, I got an email from Holly Reynolds, who is a who has a master's in history from the University of Colorado, and she told me about this very interesting Victorian era case which was in some ways like a lot of other cases from the time, but then in other ways very different in that it was mysterious. Uh, The woman at the center of it is a bit unknowable, and it involved cutting-edge science for the time. So I, Holly, thank you so much. I used her paper, which which is, again, uh, from the University of Colorado. It's called Science and Masculinity, the 1886 Pimlico Mystery Revisited. I use that as one of my sources, so you'll see it all in the show notes. So without further ado, listeners, let's go back in time to Victorian England. Oh, the site, the site of oh so many crimes and just weird happenings. And uh, we're going to hang out in the middle class for a while in a marriage that on the surface looks happy and carefree, but hides some dark secrets. England, people were obsessed with a lot of things. Industrialization, gender roles, taxidermy, green wallpaper, fern collecting, seances, and murder. Readers couldn't get enough of the sorts of gory, frightening stories that inevitably ended with a body on the floor somewhere, and newspaper editors noticed that nothing sold papers like a nice, big murder on the front page. In day-to-day life, murder wasn't actually all that common. Victorian England was far from the most violent time or place in human history. But if you got all your news from the Penny Dreadfuls, you'd probably think that down every alley there lurked a mad killer, and within every sitting room there skulked a smiling murderess. Oh yes, a murderess. Even though the Victorian ideal of femininity was the angel-in-the-house archetype, that is, a passive, submissive, meek and devoted, and practically virginal wife and mother, Victorians at large were well aware that not every woman fit the the angel-in-the-house ideal. The idea that murderesses lurked among modern, progressive Victorian society was a terrifying one, especially for middle-class readers who wanted to think that their women could never do something so monstrous. A woman who killed meant that violence had entered the safe, sacred space of the home. 
A woman who killed meant that no one, no matter how meek, devoted, and pure they looked from the outside, could really be trusted. But my darling, you will be, will be always young and fair to me. Yes, my darling, you will be always young and Like a character in a fairy tale, Adelaide Bartlett was born in a far-off land to a mysterious father and given a beautiful name and a troubled backstory. We don't know much about her childhood, but we know that in 1855 she was born Adelaide Blanche de la Tremouille in Orléans, France, and that she was born illegitimate. Historians think her father was a wealthy, powerful French count named Adolphe Collot de la Tremouille, and that her mother was a poor English nobody named Clara Chamberlain. The affair between the two, one can only imagine, was very hush-hush. Adelaide spent her childhood in France before being shipped off to England to live with her maternal aunt and uncle in Kingston-upon-Thames, an area in southwest London. The fairy tale child grew into a striking beauty, half French, half English, poised and alluring, and soon enough her looks had caught the eye of the local rich guy. When she was only 19, she met 30-year-old Edwin Bartlett, who owned a series of grocery stores and had a hobby of self-diagnosing his various real and imagined ailments with wacky DIY remedies. He fell for her quickly, asked her father if he could marry her, and in agreement, her father sent over a small dowry from France. With that, Edwin and Adelaide swore their eternal love and devotion to one another. Now, upon marrying the beautiful Adelaide, Edwin started molding her into the woman he wanted her to be. She had never finished her education, and apparently this bothered Edwin, because right after their marriage, he sent her off to a boarding school. She spent two years at boarding school and then another year at a finishing school in Belgium, seeing her new husband only on holidays, as though she were his teenage daughter. It wasn't until 1878, three years after they were married, that she finally and officially moved back in with Edwin to live a more typical married life. But almost immediately, things got weird. The first problem came in the form of Edwin's father. He was a possessive sort of chap, used to having his son all to himself, and he didn't appreciate the fact that this young French lass with her fancy Belgian education was suddenly coming between him and his boy. The situation grew even more tense when Edwin's mother died and his father moved in with the newlyweds. You can imagine the dark glances over the breakfast table, the muttering as Adelaide and her father-in-law squeezed past each other in the narrow hallways, the glares as Adelaide served him mutton. Soon enough, her father-in-law's hatred had grown so deep that he was accusing Adelaide of sleeping with Edwin's younger brother, Frederick. Adelaide denied this affair, vehemently. Edwin denied it too, outraged. He even forced his dad to march down to a lawyer's office and take the whole thing back legally. And the story died there, at least officially. But whether it was true or not, this accusation was significant, because sexual dissatisfaction would haunt their marriage from the day it began until the day it ended. See, according to Adelaide, 
she and Edwin weren't sleeping together at all. When Adelaide married Edwin, he informed her that he had some pretty strange views on marriage. He believed that everyone was meant to have not one, but two spouses, one for platonic companionship and one for, quote, passionate adoration. Adelaide and he were the platonic companionship type, he declared. I was so young I did not understand the contract I was making, she said later. I did not understand the contract when I made it, but I was loyal to it. For six years, that contract was kept between us, and then there came into my heart the wish that I too might be a mother, and on my entreaty, my husband broke through the contract that had been made once and once only. What she is saying is that she and Edwin only had sex once, and as an act of practicality, not passion. They were trying to conceive. And it worked. Adelaide got pregnant, and when her due date grew closer, they hired a midwife named Annie Walker to move in with them in anticipation of the birth. Years later, Annie Walker would disagree with Adelaide's we-only-had-sex-once story. Some people thought that Adelaide was a bit of a liar and a manipulator, changing her own story around to make herself look more innocent. Annie Walker claimed that the couple did sleep together and that the one sexual act that had resulted in pregnancy was actually the only time they had unprotected sex. Now, this sort of uncomfortable detail shouldn't normally be anyone's business other than the couple involved, but the reason we're getting so invasive here is that years later, the sex life of Adelaide and Edwin would be playing out on a national stage with every act, or absence of act, seemingly a matter of life and death. The midwife Annie Walker was a smart woman, and she could tell that Adelaide was going to have a difficult delivery, so she told the couple that they needed to have a doctor on hand to help with the birth. Edwin hated this idea. He complained that he didn't want another man having anything to do with his wife's body, even as Adelaide went into labor, and even as the labor grew worse and worse. As Adelaide screamed, Edwin protested and protested and protested, until finally at the last minute he realized that Annie Walker had been right all along and that they needed a doctor now. The doctor arrived just in time to save Adelaide's life, but far too late to save her babies. Scarred by the trauma of this agonizing birth, Adelaide declared that she would never try to have children again. Never again would she sleep with her husband in the hope that it would result in conception or allow herself to dream of motherhood. That part of her was closed off, officially. And Edwin, shuffling over papers in his office, seemed fine with it. After all, he'd chosen her as his platonic spouse. But that didn't mean he wasn't possessive over her body anyway. In his will, which left all of his wealth to Adelaide, he specified that in order to receive his riches, she could never remarry. Never old 
Adelaide and Edwin moved three times over the next seven years, ending up in the neighborhood of Pimlico in central London. Edwin ran his grocery stores. Adelaide, well, whatever Adelaide did to amuse herself, we don't really know. Middle-class Victorian women like her were expected to be wives and mothers, and since she would never be the latter, perhaps she felt obliquely shamed by society. Perhaps she got weird glances when she walked down the street. Maybe she was bored. Maybe she got into some of the weird hobbies that her Victorian peers were obsessed with, like seaweed scrapbooking, or hosting picnics in cemeteries, or making jewelry out of hair. She and Edwin were more or less living as platonic friends, and if you had asked some local London doctor for his opinion on Adelaide's situation, he probably would have told you that the platonic part of her life didn't bother her one bit. The prevailing belief back then was that women, or at least proper women, had no sexual feelings whatsoever. All that changed in 1885. The boredom, the platonic existence, the sex. That year, when Adelaide was 29 years old and Edwin was 41, a new character entered their lives. His name was George Dyson. He was 27, a Wesleyan minister, and a well-educated young man with a truly impressive mustache. Adelaide really liked him. The strange thing was that Edwin really liked him too, and even stranger, he really liked that Adelaide really liked him. Whatever happened to the Edwin who wouldn't let a male doctor anywhere near his wife? This new and improved Edwin was practically a matchmaker. He bought George a season train ticket so that George could come by and visit Adelaide whenever he wanted. He encouraged George to tutor her in math, history, geography, and Latin. He even allowed them to kiss in front of him, according to George's scandalous admission much later. Sometimes, during these math, history, geography, and Latin lessons, the maid would come in to clean, and she was always a bit flustered by what she saw. Sometimes the curtains had been pulled together and pinned shut so that no one could see in. Once she found Adelaide's head resting on George's knee. Though the technical nature of their relationship at that point is up for debate, it's clear that they were very comfortable with each other and that they did it all with Edwin's blessing. In fact, Edwin was so into their friendship that he took the extraordinary step of changing his will and striking out the whole you-may-never-remarry bit. He seemed to be implying, by legal word and personal deed, that he had already picked out his successor, and that, if something were to happen to him and Adelaide and George were to run off into the sunset, get married, and have lots of conjugal relations, he would be smiling down on them from the heavens. Before too long, Edwin and Adelaide were sleeping in separate beds, partially because of George and his luscious mustache, and partially because Edwin's breath was absolutely horrible. 
For years, his teeth had been decaying, and once, in an effort to improve the situation, some amateur dentist had actually cut down his teeth to the gums and slapped in a pair of dentures instead. The result was that the stubs of his teeth continued to rot, his mouth ached painfully all the time, and his breath was the stuff of nightmares. When he wasn't obsessing over his oral hygiene or lack thereof, Edwin was convincing himself that he had syphilis and treating himself with mercury, which was a popular and disastrous cure for syphilis that ended up destroying many a kidney, causing many an ulcer, damaging many a nerve, and killing many a patient. Poor, paranoid Edwin finally found some relief when Adelaide sent him to a legitimate dentist and a legitimate doctor. The former pulled out his rotting teeth by the roots, thus alleviating a lot of his mouth pain, and the latter diagnosed him not with syphilis, but with gastritis and diarrhea. Edwin's physical health improved, but he was still an emotional wreck, depressed, nervous, and hysterical. Clearly, Edwin was an odd bird anyway, but perhaps despite all his talk about two spouses, He really couldn't bear knowing that Adelaide and George were yet again conducting their Latin lessons behind closed curtains. Maybe all his mad self-diagnosing was an attempt to treat some sort of underlying emotional fear and despair. He was such a nervous wreck that eventually Adelaide asked a new doctor for a second opinion on her husband's health. If Mr. Bartlett does not get better soon, she told the doctor, His friends and relations will accuse me of poisoning him. Edwin did get better after the new doctor prescribed him a simple old-fashioned remedy. Stop obsessing and take a nice walk in fresh air every day. Adelaide quickly realized that a healthy Edwin was even less fun to have around than an Edwin who was accidentally giving himself mercury poisoning. See, now that he was feeling a bit more like his old self again, Edwin started telling Adelaide that it was time he and she returned to the old marital bed to do more than just sleep. Yes, after all his implying that it was totally okay if Adelaide and her hot young minister canoodled in quiet rooms with closed curtains, Edwin appeared to be changing his mind. He wanted his wife back in his bed. You can imagine how much this horrified Adelaide, who had absolutely no interest in Edwin sexually. First of all, his breath still sent shudders down her spine. Second of all, ever since she lost her child, she was determined that she would never sleep with her husband again. And third of all, she was in love with another man, practically engaged to him, and so in her mind, she was saving herself for marriage to George. The idea of sleeping with Edwin was absolutely unbearable to her. Something had to be done to stop him. Two days after the Christmas of 1885, Adelaide asked George to buy her a bottle of chloroform. He bought two, telling the chemists that he was going to use it on grease stains, which was admittedly one of the things that chloroform was used for in those days. What was the chloroform actually going to be used for? Adelaide told different stories to different people. She told her landlady that she sometimes gave chloroform sleeping drops to her husband at night. 
She told George that she was going to use it to help Edwin with these spasms that he sometimes got, and that this was an old wives' remedy that their doctor didn't know about, which is why she hadn't ordered the chloroform directly from him. And she told her doctor that the chloroform was for resisting Edwin's advances, that she needed to remain celibate for George, and so if Edwin came at her, she planned to put a few drops of the chloroform onto a handkerchief and hold it over his nose until he passed out. On New Year's Eve, Edwin went to the dentist to get some more of those rotting teeth pulled and came back with his mouth inflamed from the treatment. Adelaide had a festive supper waiting for him with fruitcake and brandy. The husband and the wife went to sleep as the new year came barreling towards them. George was restless. Adelaide tried to soothe him. Who knows what their last words were to each other? All we know is that, as 1885 slipped into 1886, Adelaide woke up her landlords at 4 a.m. with the chilling phrase, Come down. I think Mr. Bartlett is dead. On January 2nd, five doctors stood over Edwin's cold, stiff body. They were going to conduct an autopsy on him to determine the cause of death, which no one had been able to figure out. Adelaide said that she found him lying face down on the floor and had poured brandy down his throat in an attempt to revive him, and then called for her landlord and a doctor. Her landlord had noticed various suspicious things in the room, like a wine glass that smelled of brandy and chloroform, but he hadn't seen anything that definitively indicated that Edwin had been killed by some substance, so the doctors needed to cut him open. When they opened up Edwin's stomach, those five doctors were immediately struck by the distinctly sweet smell of liquid chloroform, so fresh that it seemed like it had just been poured out of a bottle earlier that day. Edwin had clearly died from a bad case of chloroform poisoning. That much was obvious now. The only question was, how in the world did his wife manage it? Liquid chloroform, you see, is almost impossible to swallow. It scalds and burns the throat and causes painful blisters to spring up around the mouth, and yet Edwin's throat and mouth were strangely undamaged. There was no sign of the chloroform ever traveling to his stomach, but it was clearly there. And its presence was suspicious enough to get Adelaide charged with murder. George was charged with being an accessory before the fact until the prosecution decided that they'd rather use him as a witness against Adelaide and withdrew their case against him. Now, remember Adelaide's rich, influential French father? From across the English Channel, he decided to exert his power for his long-lost daughter's sake. He sent her the best defense lawyer in the business, Edward Clark, and opened his deep pockets to pay for top-notch scientists who would testify that Adelaide couldn't have possibly gotten that chloroform down that untouched throat. Papers wrote breathlessly about the trial. Onlookers crowded into the courtroom to catch a glimpse of this sordid woman, and Adelaide shocked them all by appearing in court hatless with her hair cut very short. She never spoke a word in her defense, 
criminals weren't allowed to testify in their own defense at the time, but the message from France was clear. Adelaide may have been only a little housewife involved in a sordid love triangle, but she wasn't going to go down without a fight. Her trial began on April 13, 1886, at the famous Old Bailey in London. The prosecution laid out three different ways that chloroform could have gotten into the stomach of poor, dead, paranoid Edwin. One, suicide. They insisted that this was highly improbable. Two, accidental poisoning. In other words, Edwin mistook the chloroform for something else and drank it down. This was also unlikely, the prosecution argued, because sipping chloroform is disastrously painful, and it would have been quickly clear to Edwin, what with all the burning and blistering, that he was drinking something deadly. Three, deliberate administration by a third party, a.k.a. murder, a.k.a. murder by Adelaide. Their theory, the prosecution contended, was that Adelaide had used a little bit of chloroform to knock Edwin out and then poured the fatal dose down his throat, perhaps using a small tube, which would account for the lack of throat blisters. Then the defense stepped up to the plate. Was the suicide theory so improbable, they argued? Edwin was a hypochondriac and seemed to have convinced himself that he was dying, despite doctors telling him that there was nothing wrong with him other than a few rotten teeth. His despair at the thought of his imminent death could have very well led him to kill himself by gulping down a fatal dose of chloroform. The defense then brought up two very expensive and impressive authorities on chloroform, who declared that there had never been a murder by liquid chloroform case in all of British legal history, and that the prosecution's theory that Adelaide knocked Edwin out and then poured liquid chloroform down his throat wouldn't have worked because the chloroform could have easily gone down his windpipe instead, but his windpipe was totally undamaged, and anyway, when people are unconscious, their muscles are rigid, so his throat wouldn't have been relaxed enough for chloroform to have been poured down it, and if that had happened, he probably would have vomited, and there was no sign of vomit. Edwin had clearly swallowed the chloroform voluntarily, they concluded, making this a suicide. In order to convince the jury that Edwin would have killed himself, the defense had some character manipulation to do. They needed to paint Adelaide as the perfect Victorian wife and Edwin as, well, a total weirdo. As Holly Reynolds writes in her paper, it was not possible to argue that Edwin's death was a suicide without first casting him as mentally, emotionally, and sexually unfit, and thus disrespectable. Since there were only two people in the room when his death occurred, the argument against Edwin's masculinity also rests on his wife being the model of middle-class female respectability. To cast Adelaide as respectable, the defense painted her as a good girl, a girl who nursed Edwin faithfully, who never changed her story about what happened that night, and who openly admitted that she had asked George to purchase her chloroform, which proved that she was innocent because she naively didn't even realize that she should have lied about it. Of course, we know that Adelaide did lie about the chloroform, changing her story several times about its use. Then the defense turned to Edwin, emphasizing all the strangeness of their marriage, painting him as weird and weak and suicide-prone. Rejected by his wife, the defense said, Edwin took his own life, and this angelic Adelaide had nothing at all to do with it. <laughs> the sweet little woman wouldn't know how to chloroform a grown man if she tried. After six days of trial, the jury was ready to pass down their verdict. 
and their verdict is a veritable study in ambivalence. Here's what the foreman said. We have well considered the evidence, and although we think grave suspicion is attached to the prisoner, we do not think there is sufficient evidence to show how or by whom the chloroform was administered. This statement was so unclear that the court clerk was forced to respond, uh, Then you say that the prisoner is not guilty, gentlemen? Not guilty, the foreman replied. Afterward, journalists swarmed around a famous local surgeon named Sir James Paget, asking him to comment on the case. He declared, Now that she has been acquitted for murder and cannot be tried again, she should tell us, in the interest of science, how she did it. But my darling, you will be, will be always young and fair to me. Yes, my darling, you will be always young and Decades later, Alfred Hitchcock would call the story of Adelaide and Edwin my favorite true mystery. And a mystery it remains to this day. No one ever found out what happened on that cold New Year's night when, somehow, Edwin Bartlett found himself with chloroform in his stomach. But people had their suspicions. Even though the courtroom erupted in cheers when Adelaide was declared innocent, a lot of folks still thought she'd done it. Adelaide certainly had the motivation to kill her husband, the same type of motivation that pops up again and again in cases like this. The desire to get rid of one unpleasant marriage so you can start a better one. It seems clear that she didn't force Edwin to swallow anything, but perhaps she encouraged him to. In a 1994 article in the British Medical Journal, a writer reviewing the case pointed out that Edwin's mouth would have already been uncomfortable and inflamed from his tooth extractions earlier that day. So if Adelaide handed him a glass of what she said was brandy and told him to swallow it down quick, maybe he didn't feel the burning of chloroform in his mouth until it was too late. After all of that publicity and trouble, Adelaide and George never married. Maybe the whole thing was an uncomfortable dose of cold, hard, brutal reality. Maybe their love, which had seemed so special and sacred behind closed curtains, suddenly seemed maudlin and morbid in the harsh light of the courtroom. A love story that wasn't worth a cold body on a bedroom floor. Maybe George didn't believe Adelaide when she told him that the chloroform was going to make her husband feel better. Maybe he saw something in her, something frightening, that he couldn't unsee. He ended up moving to America and changing his name to John Bernard Walker, where he edited Scientific American and wrote a book about the Titanic and married a socialite. Adelaide's shadowy, wealthy father may have come to her rescue again after the trial, because after being acquitted, she vanished, and to this day, no one knows what happens to her. Perhaps she went back to France to claim her birthright as a mysterious man's wealthy daughter. Some say she went to America to start a new life. 
People wondered if she would ever marry again. In fact, she was rumored to have received 17 proposals right after the trial, including one from a clergyman. One paper reporting on this phenomenon wrote, Let us hope that Mrs. Bartlett may be recompensed by a happy union for her past miseries. She has the matrimonial advantage of some thousands of pounds and a most bewitching pair of eyes. She is also an attentive and experienced sick nurse whose experiences of the dangers of using chloroform are sufficiently painful to deter her from practicing with that drug upon a second husband. The end, folks. I hope you liked that tale of chloroform and mystery in Victorian England. Thanks again to Holly for the awesome paper and for the suggestion. Uh, you know the drill. Follow Criminal Broads on Instagram to see a photo of Adelaide with her very fashionable short-cropped hair. At least fashionable in today's terms. Um, email criminalbroads at gmail.com to chat. Rate and review on iTunes if you're feeling gracious, and check out patreon.com slash criminalbroads if you'd like to support the show. Um, I think that our next episode, I, I want, I'm pretty sure we're going to be returning, or we're going to be staying in Victorian England, because you know what? Why not do two Victorian cases in a row? Let's just dive deep into the vibe. If you liked the music I used for this episode, it was not quite contemporary to Adelaide's crime, but it's Victorian music um, because I was desperate to set the scene and get you into that spooky sort of I make jewelry out of hair, I scrapbook with seaweed, I'm into seances, and I read Penny Dreadfuls of Murder, Victorian vibe. That you know we would all be like that if we lived back then, so let's not judge. (laughs) Okay, thanks so much for listening, everyone, and have a good couple of weeks until I talk to you next. Bye-bye. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.